0: What's up party people in the place to be? It's your boy Talib Quali. Once again, you were tuned into another wonderful, fantastic, tremendous, stupendous episode of the world's best podcast, The People's Party. Yes indeed, we got my lovely and talented and recently new mother in the house, Jasmine Lee in the house. Give it up for Jasmine Lee in the house. I'm going to clap Yay! for you Jasmine because I think you're holding a baby in your lap. You know what I'm I I am holding the baby. Yes, and that's how we get it done in the People's Party. It's a family show, it's a family affair, it's for the children. Congratulations to Jasmine on her beautiful new baby girl. Yes indeed. Thank how are you, you feeling? So much. As a new mother, Jasmine. I'm
1: feeling you know what? I'm I don't know. I haven't slept, so I don't know how my <laughs> mind is feeling. But I think that all of my late night partyings with you and Jeff and Dave <laughs> that prepared me for lack of sleep. So I'm here and it looks like I had eight hours.
0: That's right. You look wonderful. You look fantastic. Um, I also ha- you, have uh, a newborn baby boy, so we have newborns in the house. And uh, our one of our producers and friends and people who work with us on People's Party, Steve Bramucci, he has a newborn in his life. So, so it's a lot of new energy, new children, new lives. People's Party is for the children, for the babies. Um, and yeah, and um, yes. I want to definitely shout out. The Morgan, Morgan House in Yellow Springs, Ohio, for always letting me recently record out of here since we out here at a Team Chappelle Summer Camp. Um, today's guest is a good, good friend of mine. It's my honor and my privilege and my pleasure to say that this is a good friend of mine. He is also out here in Yellow Springs hanging out at the Team Chappelle Summer Camp. Um, he is an MC, he is a filmmaker. He is an actor. He is a college professor. He is, uh, I would say that his position in the culture is indisputable. Um, his additions to the culture, from being a founding member of the group Euphrates to the albums he's put out, uh, The Narcissist, Nargesy, World World War Free Now, Space Time. The new album is Love and Chaos. He's a music video director. He's done videos with Yasin Bey. Uh, myself, Anderson, Pat, Kate Trinata. Nico Is, A Tribe Called Red, Um, he writes books, Diet Tribe of a Dying Tribe, Text Messages, or How I Found Myself Time Traveling is a new book. Ladies and gentlemen, wherever you're watching from on the planet, this artist is global, this artist is international, he's a good friend of mine. Again, I say it because I'm proud to have him as a friend. Give it up for Narcy, Narcy Narsi is in the house, represents so cool. Iraq, Dubai, and montreal canada what up narcy
2: what's up guys congratulations jasmine
1: thank you so much
2: new life new energy it's beautiful thank you for that intro man that was crazy
0: No (laughs) you you earned it you deserve it
2: thank you brother
0: thank you for being a part of this show we appreciate you around these parts my pleasure Um, bro so i want to start off by saying um Thank you for directing a couple of videos for me, and I'm going to start by talking tra- about traveling light. Traveling Light was produced by Kate Trinada. It features Anderson Pack. Um, mm. I tapped you to do the video, and since you here in Yellow Springs, it reminds me that the video we did sort of felt like a precursor to what we're doing out here in Yellow Springs. Yeah,
2: um, big time. A lot
0: of the people, a lot of the people who are out here with us in Yellow Springs are in the Traveling Light video, um, mm. from Mo Amr who's a good friend of both of ours, to Dave Chappelle, um, you know, to Michael Che came out here. Uh, you know, there's just a lot of people who are in that video. Um, we're doing this podcast uh, live from Yellow Springs. It's, just, it's, it's this Yellow Springs connection uh, that Dave Chappelle has, has fostered. Um, now, in order for us to all be here together, we had to get COVID tested. Um, yeah. We're in a space of enormous, enormous privilege because of our good friend Dave Chappelle, that we get to get COVID tested with the 15-minute COVID test and we can hug each other and be in the same rooms and party together. Um, At the end of the Traveling Light video, Chappelle says, the imperative is to happen in real life. Um, What were you trying to capture in that video and how do you feel like it relates to the times we're going through now in this pandemic?
2: I think... The, the you had called me maybe a week before I came out to New York and uh, I wanted to have the video feel like my experience of New York every time I visited and more particularly of Brooklyn and and just basically follow you through your life and have this documentary feel but everybody involved is such a uh, uh, a big star or like somebody that has such a huge, influence on the culture that it almost feels surreal that everybody's in the same room. I mean, we got Slick mm-hmm. Rick in there, we got Jarobi mm-hmm. in there, we got obviously Dave. Seinfeld was in the house that day. It was a bit insane for me, but I think being behind the camera helped me kind of deal with it because it was it mm-hmm. was um and then how how warm everybody was. So I wanted mm-hmm. to show the camaraderie of what art has done for the community that you work in that you've been working in for over 20 years and how natural it feels for you guys to create these incredibly magical moments for audiences, you know, so that was really it. And then the, the crazy thing was on the way there mm-hmm. with my boy Walid, Walid Kafi, who's the, the DOP that was shooting. Um, we were on the plane and I was like, yo, we're going to get Spike Lee in this video. He's so Brooklyn and such a (laughs) part of my Brooklyn experience, like through media that we have to get Spike in it. And then two days later, we were at Spike Lee's uh, jam in the streets. So it was it was a serendipitous event. Every time I work with you and Yassine, it's always like this. I kind of let go and let the universe guide it. And it's always been really magical, you know.
0: Yeah, that was a magical time period. It was around Dave Chappelle's birthday. It was in August. It was Afropunk was going on. And then Spike Lee was having mm. his barbecue where he always has the, Mike, the, the the music of Michael Jackson playing by DJ Spinner. And Dave, Dave Chappelle was doing his legendary run at Radio City. So all it was like a perfect storm yeah. of creative energy and it good vibes. So thank you for being a part of that. Um, you also direct, directed the you for for all, all a video for All of Us. Of Absolutely. I love mm. your vision. Um, you directed All of Us, a song that features J. Electronica, Yummy Bingham. The video itself is a narrative that you created. It just tells the story of a black man who was unjustly killed by a police officer, a father, a member of the community. Um, thank mm-hmm. you for always being an ally to black communities in your life and in your art, Narsi.
2: Thank you, bro. I mean, I think it's very important for me to first say that, you know, growing up and, and traveling between Montreal and Abu Dhabi, which I be- didn't belong to either. Uh, at a young age, hip hop became this very, um, formative culture for me, uh, f- to find my voice in times where I felt silent and, and silenced. You know, I lived in a city where politics were not very, uh, encouraged in, in the, in the Gulf. And then in Canada, I was too young to really understand what was going on during the Gulf war. So hip hop came at a, a, a very specific time in my life and it, and it, It helped me deal with a lot. So the other thing that it taught me was to delve into people's experiences that I am too privileged to experience, but develop empathy for to really uh, understand what a global experience of earth is and how everybody's um, uh, environment shapes them very differently, right? So when it came down to doing that video, I had a lot of conversations with you because I wanted your voice in it, most importantly, and being from the Arab community and having this historical, very complicated relationship with the black community in America, as well as you know if you go all the all the way back to slavery, our people were were deeply involved in in the sale of human beings so like i have a I have a duty while being a guest in this culture to do the the, the best that I can to pay homage to the roots of it, but also the community that birthed it and, and you know when it 's time to speak with them um of course I'll stand behind them 100% because they stood behind me just by creating and being such a resilient community in a crazy country like America, you know?
0: Yes, indeed. And um, so that the people who, were, who are watching this know, uh, you were born in Abu Dhabi to parents who are mm-hmm. b- f- from Iraq, correct, right? And then your family immigrated from Abu Dhabi to Montreal when you were around five years old?
2: Yeah, I was born in, I was born in Dubai, and then we moved to Montreal when I was five, yeah.
0: Okay, okay, cool. Um, we made the creative choice to not have rap performances in the video. Um, we went with actors to tell the story instead. Our mutual friend Yasin Bey has lately been reminding me that video killed the radio star. He is of mm-hmm. the opinion that prioritizing the focus on the visual of the artist performing takes something mm-hmm. away from how a listener experiences a song. As a, mus- as a musical artist who is also a filmmaker and a video director, what are your mm-hmm. thoughts on that?
2: Yeah, I, I definitely agree. I mean, w- when it comes to my music videos, I don't enjoy doing performance takes. I feel kind of mm. corny, uh, although some of them warrant you doing that. But m- most of the time, if I was to do that, I kind of try to insert that performance into a, into an acting situation or into mm. a narrative situation. But of course, it's also very difficult to tell a narrative in a regular music video. It ends up sometimes being really corny. It's, it's a make it yeah. or break it kind of thing. So... So I believe now the way to approach video is to tell the stories that we want told, that we've wanted told for so long that nobody has done them for us. We have to do it ourselves. So I like listening to a whole body of work and kind of creating characters within a story based around the themes that come out of that album, right? So uh, I definitely agree. It, it, It really depends on the song, but I definitely agree. I think filmic... Narrative stuff works way better than performance takes in music videos.
0: Hmm. Word.
2: You know, Yassine. Yassine is like four heads ahead, four years ahead of us, anyway. So, you know. at
1: all times. You grew up working with Sandhill, an Iraqi Canadian producer who you you shared a lot of similar experiences with and is very apparent in your music. And then another Canadian rapper, an immigrant from a Muslim country, Kanan, often talks about how when he came to Canada, people who got jumped or mugged wore it with pride, which was the exact opposite of what he was used to back in Somalia. What were your biggest social shifts and surprises mm-hmm. for um, a kid living in North America?
2: Well, I moved, to, I moved to Montreal in 87 and we were part of a wave of uh, Iraqis that were in the Gulf Arab countries uh, moving to go to the States or Europe or Canada. So my father and mother decided to go to Montreal out of all the Canadian cities. I don't really know why, but they chose Montreal. And, and initially, you know, when you hit when I hit the city, I was so young. I was with my parents all the time. But as soon as I went into school, I was in an immigrant school where there is called classe d'accueil, which means like help school. And it was um, Mm. for us to learn how to learn in French. So I had to learn a new language while navigating classrooms with immigrants that all didn't speak a similar language, right? So instantly I I remember feeling... um, out of place that's i mean i didn't have words for it at the time but it definitely felt like mm-hmm. I, it felt very isolating at a young age and my parents were working so hard that it, i couldn't communicate it to them clearly at that time and then the gulf war hit a couple of years later and like the first gulf war with with og bush you know so mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. um that was one of the most f- like formative I wouldn't say traumatic, maybe traumatic, but one of the most formative experiences for me in Montreal was finally learning to speak French, being in a very diverse community of kids, but then your country is at war with, and you know, Saddam was like the only benchmark for people of what Iraqi was. And there was crazy shit like, you know, people used to run me over with their bikes and, spray paint my house and uh, and tell me, you know, go back home, you animal. And I was very young, so my parents were really resilient and helping, and they had a lot of love in the house, so I was able to escape that at home. Um, But I never, I mean, it may have scarred me, but I never let it hold me back. It actually fueled me to do what I'm doing today. I think I've channeled a lot of those feelings into my music uh, early on in the second Gulf War. So my life has felt like, you know... um, when they remake TV shows with a bigger budget, it's just felt like that three times so far <laughs> with, with every war that happened in Iraq. It's just a different cast of characters. So
0: mm.
2: I've had that privilege of being like, I've dealt with the first wave, I could deal with the second wave, and hopefully there isn't a third wave, you know?
0: Mm. Right. Yeah, man. Um, my activism uh, sort of got jump-started with the, the first Iraq war with the OG Bush. Um, that happened when I was mm. a teenager, I was in boarding school in Connecticut and um everything about that US invasion of Iraq seemed wrong. Obviously there's 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 mm-hmm. there's there's fair and righteous criticism criticism of of Saddam Hussein and who, who the man who he was. But the way that the United mm-hmm. States handled that and the United States history in the region um, was something that me as 14 15 year old I just found hard to stomach as a United States citizen. And I, I went with a group of students it's like five or six of us to some Capitol building in Hartford, Connecticut or something or, <laughs> or and we just pr- we protested and it was it was cold. Um, it was a, a teacher his name was a uh, uh, Mr. McBride I think was his name um but took us out there and um yeah that wow. was my first experience of protest and it almost turned me off to protest honestly because it made me feel like well this obviously is not doing shit.
1: You know what mm-hmm. I'm saying? And
0: it's like, I romanticized the 1960s at that time in my life. And I felt powerless with just five, you know, me, one black kid and four white kids and some teacher from the school. We're just marching and we have our signs and we're anti-war. Just didn't feel like it was a part of anything. And um, and I just, uh, yeah, man, it was not until the Arab Spring and what happened in Egypt and then what happened in Occupy Wall Street and then Ferguson that I feel like, okay, protest is a real thing that can have mm-hmm. an effect.
2: Mm. I, th- I I mean, I became very disillusioned with protesting in, in the early 2000s when I went back to Canada mm-hmm. for university, and there was a moment at Concordia that they made a, dis- uh, Concordia University where I studied, where they, they made a documentary about this when Netanyahu came to visit the campus and we all protested outside, and I remember that day so vividly because... We got gassed by the cops. there were snipers on the roof wow. mm-hmm. and 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 then there and then the Iraq war happened, and we you know that was one of the biggest protest movements to occur in North America at that time. there was all over the world there were millions of people in the street that said no to war um, and it didn't work so uh, I felt really disillusioned by the 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 um, the media game that gets played when documenting war from a certain perspective and Knowing the casualties on the ground and the friends of ours that may have passed or the family members of ours that got sick by the war and the injustice that comes after the act, you can't really you can't really take that back. There's no real justice mm-hmm. for things like that. And and now when right. you see the growth of of uh protest, you know, in, in November, October, November, Iraq was they were protesting in the main square in Iraq and, and they were wearing face masks and that became like the the benchmark photo for people protesting in the country right before COVID hit. And then you see what's happening in America now and it just feels like there's an energy where we're all fed up with the state of uh, misrule that we live in. And that's been going on my whole life. So there are moments where I do feel like nothing is changing um, and the problem is too big for us to change it just by protesting. And then there's magical beautiful moments that occur that that make you believe in the movement again so it's yes. um it's a difficult time for our communities, man, definitely.
1: Also, we have to remember we have to remind ourselves that protesting is not the only— that's just one part of change. Yeah, so definitely. um So you can be outside and you can feel like things aren't happening, but then there's the people that are sitting behind the desk trying to push through the policy, and the people that are going to different places and teaching and things of that nature. It's not just protesting. And Talib, so when you went at 14, 15, did your teacher just pick you? Was it a special project, or how, how did— How did you get to go to protest in Connecticut?
0: Um, It was, you know, there was conversations happening. um, And I just found myself talking with a group of like-minded people. One of them happened to be the the teacher. And so the teacher was in a position of authority to be able to say, well, look, um, you know what? It wasn't Mr. McBride. That was wrong. It was Mr. (laughs) Mr. Boyd. It was Mr. (laughs) Boyd. It was Chip. Chip Boyd was the name of the teacher. It just hit me. Uh, Mr. McBride was the art teacher. And so I think I... We just thought it would be the art teacher that that did this but um
2: i think if Boyd. i could just if i could just say i think the sense of frustration that that is felt the one thing that also helped like bridge the the communities for me the black community and specifically the iraqi community for me was that that it was like death was so expendable uh, life was so expendable that death mm-hmm. was so easy to not not only commit as an act but uh, to show the people dead bodies from our community as just numbers and soulless pieces of flesh, you know, like that—that's what enrages me about what's been happening with you know George Floyd and everybody mm-hmm. before him and Breonna Taylor. It's just like people are so used to watching our people die that that yep. it doesn't leave an impact on other communities. And I think we have a duty to change that to show the value of life not only That's through right. the creative process that we put out, but also like how do we visually start encoding that differently for people to feel empathy when you see a black or brown body on the floor dying, you know? Um,
0: yeah, um, I think by conservative estimates, hundreds of thousands of people have died in the Iraqi war or conflict or whatever they call it for whatever political purpose they're trying to serve. Um, my yeah. name is Talib Kwale Green. I got cho- I got given a Muslim name by my African-American parents, not because they were Muslims, uh, or or for better to be technical, an Arabic name, um, because th- these names were in African name books. So when you look at a lot of black kids who were born in the mid-70s, from Tariq to Jamal to Amir, a lot of us have Arabic or Muslim names. Um, and I'm, I feel honored and blessed to have this name. It's a beautiful, beautiful, powerful name. Abu Talib was one of the first converts to Islam. That's correct, right? Mm -hmm. it was the the prophet muhammad's uncle and um you know Mm -hmm. talib means the student or the seeker so i I think uh it makes me want to live up to to something and that's why i chose it as my hip-hop name my rap name um but when 9-11 happened um there were talks with the people i was in business with to maybe change my professional name start going by kwali as opposed to talib and so the arab's Person who was always discriminated against, who was always seen as the villain in Hollywood films and everything, uh, now is the, the experience of the Arab person in, in America. The Arab at that moment in in the 11 time became the nigger of the country, and mm-hmm. a lot of black mm-hmm. people even became like more patriotic. Um, you once said in an interview after September eleventh, we Arabs became politicized people because of where we're from. Um, mm-hmm. What made hip hop? For you, the right method uh, for you to express this politicized viewpoint at that time
2: well, I'll tell you on nine eleven I had slept over at uh Sandhills house at Nawara Nofi's house um, and my father called me in the morning from the from the middle from uh, Dubai where he was living, and he was like, "Go home now and uh I was like what what happened?" And he's like, "What do you mean what happened? Turn on the TV and then we saw that Tower one had fallen already. So I was a 15 minute bus ride away from my apartment. I was living with my sister. So I hopped in the bus and, and both her and I worked at a mall complex uh, downtown. Um, and the next day when we went to work, the, the rumor that was going around in the complex was that my sister and I were running around ch- cheering at wow. f- for what happened in the States. And I was like, I wasn't even here. I was. Who started that? I was over Donald home. Trump? But yeah, probably. <laughs> <laughs> um, it was our bosses. We came to find out that it was the people we were working for that that that. So you know, you we always felt it like this pervasive Indiana Jones background racism that existed at all times when we were watching film, and then in society, obviously. But then when 9-11 happened, it was like a a ramp instant ramp up of the experience of racism. And, and Mm -hmm. that's when I had started making music about a year before that was when we first started hitting the studio. And, um, I mean, you know, growing up on public enemy all the way to you guys. And that being the, the work that resonated the most with me. And, and obviously Wu Tang had a huge influence on me with, with, um, the five percenter and Islam sort of mashup in their albums. Um, it was just a place to go, so I could feel safe, you know. Right. It's it's it, w- it was very ironic to me that a lot of people viewed hip hop as this dangerous space that people exist in, but actually, I felt the safest there because it was a there was no judgment for the injustice that was committed to your community. It was empowering, mm. actually, mm-hmm. right? So. Um, when I would go to the studio, it was, you know, I was studying communication studies and political science. It was 9-11. It was a hotbed in Canada for racism in Quebec. So it was like the perfect place to take all these things and unload them on, on music, you know? Um, right. And then as I got older, I learned to kind of filter it and present it in a way where people can consume it that don't relate to it, right? You start mm. finding different ways to communicate it. So hip hop just just, it, it, it's a, it's a non-judgmental space. That's how I felt for my community, anyway. So um, it just it just helped a lot. It helped me a lot. You know. Dope. And dope. you
1: said, uh, God yes. You said your boss was the one that started those rumors. Did you continue that job and was and at that time could you go <laughs> to an HR and complain about him or you just had to leave?
2: I was I was like seventeen. It was a candy shop. I won't front. And it was, you know, I, was, I was I was slanging candy on the block. Fifty
1: cent. And,
0: um, <laughs> yeah,
2: exactly. <laughs> and um, I remember the day that I confronted him. He was like, "You, you know, you, you and your people are not a good people." And I remember being like, "Fuck you! I quit. I'm out." You know. Mm-hmm. And then I, I left and uh, <laughs> I grabbed a lollipop and, <laughs> and snatched it and walked out the spot. But, um...
1: Yes. You know,
0: it, 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 was, it was small moments... Um, it's about the small, small moments, moments of, of resistance. Victory. That's right. Yeah, exactly.
1: Should have um, knocked over the whole candy display. <laughs> yeah, I
2: should have taken the whole Chubba chups display. But, um... <laughs> I, mean, I, I mean, it just... It just... It was so... Com- it was so common at that, at that time when we would walk into shops and security would follow us. And I was nuts. I would wear Palestinian head wraps on my head and walk in with, like, biker gloves and shit. I was just... I was on another level. So it was like I, I wanted to confront it directly mm-hmm. and visually, right? Where people weren't ready mm-hmm. for that shit. So there was a lot of resistance. But it, it also it also helped us shape who we are as artists and, and uh, made us stronger. So I don't, you know, I don't look back at it in anger at all. You know, we used dope.
0: to. Um, your newest album, Love and Chaos, features the family. Two of my favorite artists on the planet, Nico is Chazmere. Chaz Van Queen, that's my Colors of the Culture crew. Um, I appreciate the work you do with them. Um, I actually met you. I I thought I met you through the Colors of the Culture crew, but we'll get into that later. Um, you start <laughs> the song with a very ill bar. Um, I just hit a J like Solange Knowles. Um, I just have to say as an MC, <laughs> <laughs> I appreciate your, your bars. Um, but the song, it starts with an audio sample of one of Malcolm X's most famous speeches, The Ballad of the Bullet. Um, mm. On one hand, The section that you sampled talking about enemies is relevant to the song, which is the song is called Frenemies, right? So Mm -hmm. on the other hand, the very title of the speech that you sampled feels like it has something powerful to say about our current socio-political movement uh, and moment. Um, uh, On another hand, on yet another hand, uh, this is the speech where Malcolm X goes out of his way to explain and reassert his relationship with Islam. And he explains the duality of his role as a minister and a freedom fighter. Um, I feel like you have some very important thoughts about Malcolm X, his yeah. significance for young Arab Muslims and immigrant Muslims, and his significant in present times. Can you please share?
2: Yeah, I mean, I discovered Malcolm X. My father took me to the Imperial Theater in Montreal to watch the film, and I must have been 12 or 13, right? And... Back then, there was intermissions in movies. So halfway through the movie, there was a break, mm-hmm. I remember. And I remember on that break, feeling like this might be the best fucking movie I've ever seen in my life. Like, it, it just, I got yeah. so sucked into it that when he died in the film, I, cry, I, I cried like crazy. And I ne- I'd never cried in a movie at that age, right? So I remember right after that, my father bought me the autobiography, and I read it at 13. So... That book was probably one of the first books of that nature that I, that I, um, and at the time I had just heard N.W.A. and things like that, so it was like this um, being invited into the Black American experience from these two different perspectives. And Malcolm, look, as as young Arabs, we never had a leader that represented us. There was never a leader that came that was uh, for the people, from the people. And, and didn't become abusive or or sort of corrupted by Western powers and their own greed, right? So Malcolm was somebody that we looked at as this man went through so many changes and changed himself for the better so many times up until his death that I feel like if he had kept going, he would have almost been the perfect amalgamation of a... He, he would have been like what Muhammad Ali was about bringing people during his funeral. You know, like he's he, he would have been the cross between the Native American, the black experience and the Muslim experience in one person. So Malcolm mm-hmm. shaped not only my approach to style and and how you present yourself on stage or in front of people, but also more importantly, um, as a man, somebody who can always, always make themselves better and always become right. a better human being and a more humanity driven human, but never, never bow down to uh, the person that committed the injustice towards our community. So Malcolm was the leader that we always wished we had as young Arabs. And and he, he to this day, speaks to me. Like, I'll listen to his speeches or, uh, you know, he's somebody that's still, to this day, the influence is growing in my life, you know?
0: Mm. Yes.
1: Uh, you directed yourself, so to speak, in Thoughts and Prayers, which is a deep fake video where you take on <laughs> characters from Mark Zuckerberg to um, Matrix to Kanye West and in this case deep fakes mean deep fake means that your face is on their bodies but we're also seeing political deep fakes go viral um mm-hmm. do you think that the future of technology is going to make the truth harder than ever to distinguish from fric- oh, yeah. from fiction
2: yeah i mean i i wanted to make that video number 1 because it was so fun to do like it, it, it i didn't have to do much i i just sent some green screen footage of myself and i went on scoured youtube and found all these memeable moments or or characters in, uh, that are controversial in society and put myself in those situations. So and while I was making it and I got back let's say the footage of Kanye or or anywhere where I had placed myself into other ethnicities, I I realized how dangerous that is. Like wow. mm-hmm. you know wow. that's like that that's going to become the new blackface if you will. You know just like yeah. using black memes has become a, a bit problematic in in a sense, right? So the the video became a commentary on itself. That's why I put that ad in the beginning saying, hey, you want to go viral? You want to make a million dollars? Like, YouTube is a ridiculous place. It's just becoming... Visual culture is becoming so dangerous that, you know, you can CGI anything. Like, as a kid, mm-hmm. I don't remember knowing what a nuke is going to look like. But now I've seen it so many times in film that I, I, I feel like if we see it in real life, it's not going to be as shocking, you know? So... Right. Um, the desensitization that deep fake is going to create and, and everything in technology is a gift and a curse, right? There's a positive element to it, but there's a huge negative element to it. So yeah, you can frame anybody. You can, you know, you could shoot a whole bank heist and God forbid, and put Quali's face on the guy, you know what I mean? And then that can go to court mm-hmm. and who's to prove that that's real or wrong. Right. So like, it's just, uh, It's an interesting technology. It's fun, but it's also dangerous. You can do it in two minutes on your phone now. So imagine where we're going to be in ten years. You know,
1: I just found it interesting because you were talking about how you can. uh, It's pretty much like blackface. I don't know if you guys saw, but Daquan, the site Daquan just was bought from. um, I think Warner bought it. I'm not sure if who bought it, Mm -hmm. but it's not even ran by a black man.
0: It's ran by like I don't know. it's, It's actually. It's um because I saw Jamel Hill had to do a, a pullback on it. It was bought by Warner for twenty five million. Uh, it's run. It's the, the the account was run by a black guy and then a guy who's non black, but he's still a person of color. I'm not sure where he's from.
1: Okay, but they the, just showed the guy the non-black who's non black.
0: Yeah, the guy who's non black got outed as one of the two people who started the company, but he's partners. Jamel Hill said that uh she had a private phone call with the with the black guy who's his partner mm-hmm. who wants to remain anonymous he doesn't want to become
1: oh, okay, like a public okay, figure okay okay
0: but yeah that did begin become a big story but i what it's that's that but that speaks to what Narcy was talking about and also mm-hmm. um i saw a story about a a a, guy, a white guy who was robbing banks with a black mask that he bought from some sort of hollywood workshop and they went to this guy's they they arrested a black guy for it and they went to this guy's mother's house, and the, the guy's mother was like, "No, that's him," you know. So they got his mother out there. ratted him out. Yes, his mother ratted him <laughs> out, and it wasn't even <laughs> him. She didn't get enough money. Um,
2: <laughs> yeah, yeah, I, think, I think, I think like you know, and this whole deep fake project that's sort of a, a loose project between me and thanks Joey. Um, mm-hmm. I'm, I'm obsessed with like the impact of. I see our evolution in technology and where we're going in personal technology, let's say, or like these robot dogs that Boston Dynamics is creating or the robot, the soldiers that are going to be created. Mm -hmm. I see this as a de-evolution in humanity. Like maybe we actually reached our peak in evolution, around the time of the Sumerians, and, and then later on the Egyptians, and then the, the African civilizations that existed, that were more spir- spiritually connected than us, and their technology was probably at a higher frequency than us. But the technology that we're creating now is uh, is is not proactive. It's it's deactivating our socialization. So it's like we're at a de- at a very dangerous time now with with technology. You know,
1: and taking jobs because they're about to start using CGI for background.
2: Yeah, yeah,
0: yeah, I to take your background jobs. Um I have to add a I mean, note about, from uh, Yeah. Go go let me go. add a note from one of our producers real quick that uh that Daquan, Daquan uh was bought by Warner, which is uh the owner of Uprocks and is closer to 85 million is what it was bought for. Mm-hmm. But yeah, what are you saying? Arcee? Yeah,
2: I was saying, like, you know, with the, with the untimely passing of, of someone like Chadwick, you know, the, the first thing people started mm-hmm. talking about on social media was, like, who's going to be Black Panther now? You know, it's like it, it becomes mm-hmm. immediately this mediatization of a person. And then I started thinking, mm-hmm. like, damn, they could put Chadwick Boseman in the movie if they wanted to, right? Yeah. Like, that's yeah, where that's we're at. Creepy, like, though. Princess Leia was not in the last Star Wars, but she was, right? So She was in the last uh, two, Yeah, she's been in the last two
0: Star Wars and she she was she's been passed on and deceased for for both of them.
2: So biopics biopics are going to change. Like you might get Jamie Foxx playing Mike Tyson, but they could straight up CGI his face to look like Mike Tyson in that era just with his acting skills. So imagine how crazy that's going to be for our our minds you know tell
1: live don't be trying to CGI me on a people's party don't get any ideas <laughs> i yet. already thought about
0: <laughs> it i already i'm over here i'm over no, no, here <laughs> no. <laughs>
1: um
0: now i want to go back to your rhymes and your poetry for a second um i've heard you say that your grandfather who if mm-hmm. i'm not if i'm not mistaken is this the same grandfather who recently passed away um was a iraqi poet
2: no, my, my grandfather that passed away, Jamal Allah, Arhamah, is my paternal father. But Aga, my grandfather, okay, okay. my grandfather Tahsin, is my mom's father. And he's still, he's still kicking, mashallah. God, God keep him oh, on his purpose. Beautiful, curses, you know beautiful, what I mean? beautiful. So he, he was the first poet in our family, yeah.
0: Yes, and, and obviously he influenced you as an artist. Um, you've also shouted out Rumi, uh, who's a Sufi mystic poet. Uh, mm. Jay-Z famously named his son Rumi. Uh, the poetry of the Sufi mystics, and particularly Rumi and others, has uh, it's, it's endured for centuries and centuries across cultures. Um, talk to us a little bit about the influence of Rumi and in, in specific uh, Sufi mystic poetry and the idea of Sufism being something that I think Muslim artists tap into more.
2: Yeah, I think, you know, it's funny. I've I've called Yasina Sufi several times because I feel like his process is so comes from such a spiritual place, you know, his creative process. I mean, he process.
0: does whirling dervishes on stage.
2: Yeah, yeah, so he he is. <laughs> he, um, I think with with Rumi the, the one problematic thing that I, that I've started encountering is that it's become this like go-to you know mystical muslim you know you you breaking up with your girlfriend you got to use some rumi to deal with it but really <laughs> rumi was talking of rumi was talking about god right like R- rumi right. was talking about his, the relationship with the eternal with the, with the with the omnipresent so um rumi opened up a different chamber in me as a as an mc because it it it, it, allow, it allowed me to find like the love that i want to share in my work and be mm. be mindful of of I heard Kendrick say this once in an interview where he said, you know, if you put God in your work, it, it's just that much more powerful. And it doesn't have mm-hmm. to be like the, the Kanye album about Jesus, but it, it, it could, you know, it's just about intention and what you put in your work before you put it out. Mm-hmm. So uh, I think Rumi just makes you think on, a, on a, from a heart level, right? Whereas as an MC, I think a lot from an energy level or like a, a mind level. So it helped me kind of find a middle ground between the two to, to come from, you know? Mm.
0: Yes. Um, and speaking of um, Yassin, um, you and I talked about this yesterday. Mm. I watched Yassin struggle with receiving praise uh, mm. as an artist. He's a fantastic artist, very t- uh, talented, charismatic, deep. Um, but he's an artist who is Muslim and Islam mm. encourages all praise to the Most High. Um his wife, Yasin Bey, changed his professional name from Yasin, from Most Deaf to Yasin Bey. You told me a story of being with him in Montreal and him struggling with that and running into people who wanted to call him Most Deaf. And he's like, you know, I'm not Most Deaf. Um, it's not just uh, Muslim artists. We've seen this with Lecrae. We've seen this with uh, Chance the Rapper right now. Um, mm-hmm. How does your faith and uh, f- how does your faith affect your musical output? Um, I think
2: being Muslim from birth, you don't really question the power of the religion in your life. Mm-hmm. You know, as, as a youth, when I used to go to Islamic school for a couple of years, uh, it felt very driven by fear. And I think mm. it, it disassociated me from the practice for a while when I was a kid. But then when I started doing my own studies of the monotheistic religions and the holy books that have come out of all of them, and then more specifically the Quran, um, it's some Jedi shit. That's the only way I know how to explain it. It it really teaches you to navigate life or attempts for you to, to tap into the fact that life is not permanent and that these moments are very important and what you do with your work and your intention and in everything that you do is almost more important than the act itself. That's what influenced my work, you know, um, when it comes to the religion. I don't, like, try to infuse Islam into my work more than it already is present. Because I never wanted to be boxed in as a Muslim rapper or an Arab rapper. Right. I just wanted to be someone who was from these backgrounds but happens to be a dope MC. So, um it's not yeah, it's just about it, it, it formalized my intention and it and it made me realize that like you know, a lot of people would say that music is haram and, and I, I used to be like that's some stupid shit, what are you talking about? And I, I I don't think music is haram. I think the way certain people can use the arts can be for the devil. And that in itself is what is yes. you know, how do you use your space? And what do you say in that space? Because at the end of the day, a kid gets influenced by music. Back when when Eminem was being Mm -hmm. criticized for, uh, you know, when the school shootings were happening, those kids were listening to Marilyn Manson and Eminem. and, And I remember both of them saying like, oh, it's up to the parents and how they raise their kids. To a certain degree, yes. But to a certain degree, no, we have a responsibility as artists. That doesn't mean censor yourself, but it means what you put out into the world reverberates. Remember that Pac put out into the world like I'm... You know, I'm gonna die. Everybody's trying to kill me. Uh, you know, so like he, when it, when that went out into the world with with hip hop specifically, I feel like your intention always reverberates back in, in your life. And meeting you guys and becoming friends with you guys outside of music was a telltale sign of that. I put so much energy into that raucous era yes. when I was growing up, and and learning it, and listening to it, and and it influencing my work that it came back full circle into my life. So I think with hip hop and Islam, the things that are parallel for me is that you can really manifest the things that you want in your life. You just gotta really believe, you know? You have to have faith. And that's, that's the long-winded answer to that question.
0: I like the way you tied it up and put a bow on the end of it.
2: Yeah, I, th- I think like with Islam and with hip hop, there's the pillars of Islam and there's the, the elements of hip hop and they very much line up with each other you know if you look at the physical act of breaking it's almost like prayer you know you look at the mc it's almost like the shahada and, and 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 like you know the 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 voice resonating up against the people you know you look at the the pilgrimage it's almost like paying homage to your roots and 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 all that zakat and charity is is empathy and charity for communities you know like there's these these parallels that people don't draw, but I think these are all these spiritual practices, which hip hop is a, to a certain degree, a spiritual practice, you know, um, they're all tied in because they come from the same source, from 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 Allah, you know?
0: Yes.
1: Hamdi Allah. Um, I noticed that you talk about wifi, your wifi situation in this latest album a lot, which was made during <laughs> quarantine. We don't want any Teddy Riley incidences here. Uh, sorry. There's literally <laughs> a song called I Got Five G on it. Can you explain for the people mm-hmm. who don't know why wireless accessibility seems on the path to be treated like water, like drinking water, in that mm-hmm. it's essential mm-hmm. but also often callously kept from marginalized people?
2: Yeah, for sure. I think if you look at the internet, Quad and I were talking about this yesterday, but the internet is almost like uh Um, an external consciousness that we're all tapping into that we're using to uh, expand our minds, but also it's helping kind of like veil our eyes in a way from our own own self-understanding and our own Mm self-definition. So again, with technology having sort of two sides of the coin, but internet and Wi-Fi, if it wasn't for, for Wi-Fi, we wouldn't have seen footage from those protests in Iraq mm-hmm. if it wasn't for our phones and the internet we wouldn't see what those police officers are doing to those men and women in the streets here in America so um, i think it is definitely a privilege and and also if you look down to how our phones are made and the 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 exploitation that it takes to create every one of our phones and us being inextricably linked to that exploitation you know we're Wi-Fi is, is a definitely becoming a human need. It's food, clothing, shelter, mm-hmm. and Wi-Fi. Because wow. if you're off the grid and you need to connect with the rest of the world, you need the internet, you know? And the, a great way to control all of us is to give us maximum content and ability to use these spaces. But then if they want to shut us down, they just pull the internet from us and it's going to kind of cave in on society, right? So. Um, it's obvious why it's kept away from marginalized communities because the knowledge is there. It's all about how you use it. So,
1: exactly, you can
2: either either use it to TikTok dance and express yourself or to really educate yourself. I learned a lot of shit on the internet on how to mix or like you know I, I read full books on the internet. So, yeah, mm-hmm. it's it's a same tactic that they've been using
1: for centuries. You know. And it shows you just how essential um, Wi-Fi is, because when COVID happened, there were multiple people that, well, multiple companies that were giving free Wi-Fi to different communities that usually would have to pay for it. So if they're giving out free Wi-Fi, that's just a bright light that says, okay, this is something that we need that should be accessible anyway.
2: Yeah, for sure. And, and I think, you know, I got 5G on, it was obviously a, a play on the Lunas track, but 5 Five G is it became this huge conspiracy around COVID and you know in the beginning people were like that shit is being spread apart spread around by the towers. I think something worse might come out of five G with the radiation. We don't know, we're guinea pigs to that whole shit, right? So mm-hmm. um I think we're like ten years into the internet now, a bit over ten years into the internet, and it's really affected our humanity and in a in a in a good way and a horrible way. So I wonder mm-hmm. where the next ten years of that shit is gonna is gonna go, you know? Mm.
0: Now, Narcy, how long have I known you for?
2: Uh, I met you in 2004.
0: Which I don't remember that first initial meeting, but you told a story where Chris Riggins was around the other day. You said I dissed you when I first met you. Do you mind yeah. uh, sharing that story? <laughs> yeah, you,
2: you came you came to Montreal to do a show at the Medley, which doesn't exist anymore in Montreal. Okay. And it was for Concordia. I think it was to, 2004.
0: In 2004, that, that was with Kanye when it, West I had with me.
2: Yeah, when did it Get By drop? 2004, 2005? It, started, it dropped
0: 2003.
2: Yeah, so 2004 you came. It was you, DJ Dummy. I remember vividly, DJ Dummy. It was Kanye. the it was
0: Electric Circus Tour. I was opening for Common, and I had Kanye yeah. and GLC with me as my like. Yeah, teammate. and GLC
2: was there. So I freestyled yeah. with, with GLC and Kanye, and I didn't know who Kanye was until he told me he was Kanye. And he told me of in, a, in a very funny way. And we tried to get a <laughs> drop from Kanye. I was in a group called Pat Bateman back then, and I was like, "Yo, Kanye, can we get a, can we get a drop from you?" We're, we're called Pat Bateman. He's like, "Yo, this is Kanye Tiddler. you listening to Pat Dayton?" And we just couldn't get him to say it right. We still have the It was, it was just a <laughs> hilarious day. And then I remember going down to watch your sound check, and you noticed us, and it was snowing outside. I was with my boy Yushua. and you were like. Yo, get these motherfuckers out of here. <laughs> we, 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 don't to, we don't want anybody to watch our sound check. and I was like, "This is it's a show. This we is,
0: cr- we're putting on a professional show.
2: I didn't want to see behind the curtain." <laughs> Listen, I was like, this, is, them- this is crushing. <laughs> but <laughs> but then I then I met you several times. I met you at South by Southwest once. You did a show mm-hmm. with Jean Grey and them. And then I met you at. Uh, I don't at, remember any of
0: this. Of course you do, but you would always,
2: I remember you'd always give me this look. You'd be like, like you'd look at me like I've seen, is this guy the Feds? I've seen him like five times in <laughs> different places. But then I got to know you at the, the Kennedy Center um, when we went to do the inaugural hip hop event that I think Q-Tip was he- heading the whole thing. But um, I was doing a show there and then the next day you were doing a show there with Jin and, uh, Michael Eric Dyson was there and the host didn't show up. And then I ended up hosting the show, um, mm-hmm. and, and doing, moderating the panel with Michael Eric that. Dyson. And that's when, yeah, that's when I really, <laughs> and Nico was there. I first met Nico there that day. So that was when I really got to know you, you know? And then Oh, so know,
0: wait, so Nico. you met Nico that same, that's the day you met Nico, because I feel like, of course, shout out, first of all, shout out again to Nico is, and thanks Joey. Big shout out Nico uh, is, anytime. uh, Syrian, uh, by way of Brooklyn producer who works a lot with Nico is. And, um, I feel like by the time I started getting to know you, you were part of Nico and Joey's crew at that point. That's Mm -hmm. what it felt Mm -hmm. like to me. Um, Mm -hmm. and it felt, you feel like family because of it. Um, now what's interesting about that is, uh, after associating you with Nico and Joey, I'm like, okay, that's Nico and Joey's friend. Narcissist, a narcissist. um, I was laying in my bed, looking at my bookshelf, and a title for a book jumped out. And the title was so brilliant, and I had never noticed it before. And it said, Diatribe of a Dying dying Tribe. And I was just, as a a wordsmith, I was like, man, that's brilliant. What book is this? I was like, someone gave me this book with this brilliant (laughs) title. I never even looked at it. And I opened the book, and in the book was a dedication written to me from the narcissist. And it was Narcy's. It was Narsi's book, and it was this very heartfelt, warm dedication that I was like, "Fuck, this guy gave me this book, and I didn't pay any attention to it. I just, but at least <laughs>
2: again, at, Kali, again, yes, at,
0: at least it made it to my bookshelf, right? Like, it made it to the shelf. So I read this book, and the book sort of documents Narsi's attempt at throwing uh, sort of an Arab hip hop summit or concert, right? And, uh, no,
2: we. I was doing my. I was doing my thesis at Concordia for my master's degree. Okay. And, and it was a project thesis, so we did an album called "The Arab the Summit," album. which was like a meeting of the Arab minds. Arab Summit. Minds. Right.
0: Okay. Right. Yeah. Right. Right. And um, you know, all these wonderful Arab MCs that I never heard of were documented in this book. This this movement was documented. But that wasn't as, as impressive as that was. What impressed me was the actual writing of the book and the way that you put words together. And again, as a lyricist, as a word, wordsmith, you were doing things in that book that I was like, man, I can't do that. And that's not a lot of people in the world, Narci, wow, that that's write crazy. something that's that I'm like, that's I crazy. read it and I'm like, I, I can't do that. And so crazy. I, I want to thank you for writing that book, for being such a pro- prolific writer and getting me back... On my writing that inspired me so greatly to write. Absolutely.
2: That's crazy, man. I mean, see see what I mean by full circle? You know, listening to you guys, whether it be from the Black Star Records to the Sound Bombing Records to the mm-hmm. Reflection Eternal albums to, you know, all the, the, the Soul Aquarians, like that was a huge influence on my work. So for you to say that, it means a lot, bro. You, you know, because you, You probably see yourself in my work, you know, and and vice versa. I do.
0: And vice versa, absolutely. Absolutely. Um, Now, um, the Space Time album is an album I really like. Um, I saw you interviewed once, and when asked about it, you said uh, the concept is too large to get into it right now, was your answer to the interviewer.
2: (laughs) If I wasn't in the mood that day.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Now, here at the People's Party, we got time today, cuz. So uh, (laughs) let's get into it. Tell me about Space Time and that concept.
2: Yeah, the Space Time record was both in the making of the album and conceptually, um, it was really about being in the moment. All my records prior to that had dealt with how the past had shaped my current identity, right? Mm. Whereas with Space Time, I wanted to really be about being in the space and time that I was existing in. But also the concept of space-time is how, you know, that life is almost like a loop. And that if you if you shoot in quantum physics, if you shoot up in a straight line for long enough through space-time, you might end up in the same spot again. So it was really about mm. the journey of, of my grandparents and my parents, but now like how it influenced the moment now. Um, and it was also about claiming being a time in which we as young brown people have to claim our space mm-hmm. as our own and not define it in reaction to whatever is being said about us. You know, a lot of mm-hmm. the times as creatives, we created Muslim or Arab or brown or whatever content around what the, the oppressor was saying about us, you know? And like, no, we are not that, we are this. But with this album, I was like, this is who I am as Yasin, as a 30 uh, 30-something-year-old with two kids navigating planet Earth, traveling through space and time. This is who I am right now. Uh, mm. And a lot of the songs are like super vulnerable moments in the creative process and almost uh, commentary on being an artist. And, and, you know, I'm outside the industry, so I exist in my own space outside of the music industry, and I work on my own time to create the stuff that I create. So... It, it was really about all these different, the macro and the micro of existing in these spaces and how uh, I can translate that into lyrics and, and emotions to music. Um, I did that album very quickly too. I did it in the span of a couple of months, you know? Um, and I was very experimental and I, yeah, I didn't, I didn't overthink it. I just did it, mixed it, put it on the record. So yeah, that that was, and that was where I really got to know Joey and start working closely with Joey and, And him becoming Uh, a huge collaborator in my universe, you know?
0: Yes. Shout out. Thanks, Joey. Definitely.
2: Shout out. Thanks, Joey. And Sandhill.
0: And Sandhill. Definitely.
1: Saying, I just realized that now I'm considered 30-something, too. But uh, (laughs) neither here nor there. (laughs) Jeez. Uh, You're good friends with... I know, my birthday's next... Well, a couple weeks. Anyway. Uh, You're good friends with Mo Amir. And if you're a watcher of the People's Party, by the time this episode comes out, you should have already seen that. And um, he's a Palestinian comedian. Uh, you also have a song "Animal," which is one of Talib's favorite songs, which yeah. uh, is inspired, which is inspired by the legendary Eddie Murphy's bit "Moo from Raw. Uh, you often employ comedy in your bars, and is, uh, you often employ comedy in your bars. Is it important for an MC to have comedic timing?
2: Yeah, I mean, comedy has always been a big part of my life. You know, when I first watched. Uh, Delirious by Eddie Murphy, my father had bought... My father was a, a big media movie head. So he went to this um, video store and they were s- selling Betamax tapes. I don't know if you remember those, but they were like mm-hmm. yes. the small video cassettes, yeah. right? And he bought their <laughs> entire... Um, oh, wait, no, I do know He going. bought their entire collection, which was... He bought their entire collection, which was like 200 movies. And out of all those movies for some reason I ended up picking out delirious and I watched it with my sister at a very, very young age at night when my parents were sleeping and it was <laughs> such a, like, it became a part of our lexicon, you know, the jokes, some of the the ice cream joke and all these jokes that were in yeah. that show became such a part of like the funny shit that we would say to each other. And, and growing up watching Jim Carrey and then eventually, obviously Chappelle, uh, seeing the impact of how being self-deprecating while being serious is almost way more impactful um, in in public consciousness than just being really like militant about shit. So in a lot of my videos, I try to infuse comedy that's uncomfortable in there so that when you experience it, you laugh, but then you think, oh shit, I just laughed at that. that. I'm kind of fucked up for laughing at that, right? So, um, <laughs> it's it's a device to disarm. It's a device to disarm the viewer's prejudice, while ramping it up in their head, so that you make them actually question why they have that prejudice, right? Uh, and I learned I learned that from I learned that straight up from Dave Chappelle. You know, like from the Chappelle Show, mm. and from the moment of him leaving the show and saying. Somebody was laughing at my joke, and I didn't know if they were laughing at me or with me, and and that made me realize like
0: mm-hmm.
2: uh, it's so so important to uh, to do that in your work.
0: Yeah, man. You know, comedy. You mentioned your videos. I was watching the video for uh, for Animal, and you were dressed like a goat, which yeah. was a, a way of of using that device. Um, uh, this character that you play. In the McCool video and the Chubby Bryant video, Jassim, mm-hmm. uh, <laughs> this, this character. This character. You first of all, you look you have a lot of fun playing that character. Um, second of all, it looks like you know that person. It's it, look, it looks like you know that person. Um, this character embodies, uh, you know, sort of an immigrant's enthusiasm for American or Canadian culture, just the freedom and the jant of of uh, the freedom and the. Uh, uh, joy of dancing and and mm-hmm. the lack of posturing that um that I think a lot of people get caught up in. Um, he's free, he's fun, he's loose, but he's also someone who people look look at as a stereotype in a lot of ways. How, why do you feel like this character and un- was so important? Yeah,
2: so so Jossim is like a, 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 a an amalgamation of several people in my life, which I won't name because I don't want to air them out or anything but everybody has a, everybody has a Jassim in their family. Like everybody has that uncle or that cousin who's just off the cuff. That's, you know, fresh off the boat or the plane and, and you know, is, is made fun of in Western society because of his inability to function within the norms of what is normal or cool or whatever. But Actually, he's way more free than the people who who tout their freedom in North America because he knows how to yeah. be in the moment, right? So, like, his whimsical in-the-moment shit is actually way more free than the posturing that most of us do at clubs trying to pick up women or whatever a person might be doing at right. the club, right? So um, – so yeah, Jossam is an, I, I always wanted to like expand on Jason and put him in an action movie where he dies and becomes like a, <laughs> a like a legend in the, in this fake world that I'm creating. But uh, Jason was important because it, it was really like, that's who, that's partly who I am with my friends. Like I'm that slapsticky mm. with it, right? Right. But people see me as such a serious person. Um, And again, the song is, you know, the song is maku, which means ain't nobody better than than us. Like ain't nobody that could do anything better than us. So it's a celebration Mm -hmm. of my people versus all the adversity that they may have faced. But also being like, you know, we don't take ourselves that serious. Maybe that's why we're better than you. You know, so, right right you know, somebody needs to give me a budget to turn that shit into a movie. Shout out to Jossim. Shout out to Jossim. I
1: love that name. If I ever forget all the pain I went through and have a son, I'm going to name him Jossim. <laughs>
2: <laughs> That's amazing. I'm going to let my sister know that she created him. So that means a lot. Yes,
1: I love
0: it. <laughs> <laughs> now, a little bit on the flip side, Alhamdulillah um, um, is one of your biggest records that people know you for. Uh, Thank and praise Mm God. Um, It's a song of gratitude for the gifts you've been given to yearning for a better world. Um, The video is so nice. Uh, If I'm not mistaken, it has Jay Electronica in it, Tragedy Gaddafi in it, Brother Ali's in it. There's a lot of just people, you connect the black, and not just black, but you connect Muslims all over the planet. You show the diversity of Islam. Um, How did it feel in that video? Really took off.
2: Um, again, I think at the time there weren't many of these like um, collaborative online experiences when creating video. And when I was working mm-hmm. with the with the director Adwan, who was a, a great friend of mine, um, it was we met, and that was when I first saw Yassin perform. Actually, that weekend was at Streets, Take It to the Streets in Chicago, which is organized by Iman out there. Um, right and and everybody was there. So I was like, yo, bro, I have this song coming out. And you know, Shadia, Shadia Mansour, who sings the hook on that song, is not mm, Muslim. She's
0: singing on a song, yeah.
2: Yeah, she's not Muslim. Okay. So the intention of the work was to show the diversity of my community. And not everybody in the video ah. is Muslim, but obviously me being it. where I'm from uh, and, and it being filmed at this, you know, predominantly Muslim event, it became that. And I thought it was... Serendipitous. And it it just became what it became. And then when we shot everybody there, we had around 50 people. And I was like, listen, let's put out a call sheet for people who have your exact camera, the exact lens to shoot at an exact time. And when the sun was setting in these different cities, let's put a call out on social media and get footage back. And when we did that, we ended up getting hundreds and hundreds of people sending their portraits from all over the world and it became yes, that video. Yes. And Jay Electronica was in Egypt with my friend Leith and Mochilla. Um, Leith Majadi and Mochilla were in Egypt with him and I, he was like, yo, I got you a shot of Jay Electronica at the pyramids. And, and it was mm. like, the only people I couldn't get were Lupe and Yasin at the time. I really wanted them to be in the video as well. Um, and then and then the song, you know, took took a life of its own and being such a, an experience of bringing all these creatives around the world to work on it, it took a life of its own online and everybody that was in it was sharing it. So it it grew organically, you know. Um, And then it got placed in a film. It got placed in uh, Fast and Furious 7, I think. The one that takes place in in part of the the, the Arab
0: world. I remember watching that movie in the movie theater and hearing the, the song come on and be like, yo, I know him, I know him.
2: <laughs> yeah, and that that added a whole layer, you know, uh, uh, and, and it made me realize the power of placement. All my songs that have been placed in shows, whether it be Sun that was placed in the first episode of Rami, which is a song about my son, um, mm-hmm. or Alhamdulillah, you know, and both of those songs have, a, it's like Inshallah and Alhamdulillah, they both have this, like, connection to God, they're my biggest songs, you know? So it defined me as right, an artist. Right. And alhamdulillah, is such a, it's the gift that keeps on giving. It was also the last beat that Sandhill was, were two, was two brothers before Nofi Fannan passed away. God, God bless his soul. He was like our older brother. That was the last beat he gave me on CD before he passed, like in 2004. Mm. And I didn't record that song till 2006. And then it didn't come out till 2008. So that song is really 15 years old, old in the in the making, and it's been the one that's ke- kept going in my career, you know. So it's
0: a blessing. Yes, mm. that's a blessing indeed. I was talking to Kevin Hart on the phone with a uh, with Yassine Bey, and and he said he was talking to me. He said, "Well, that's what Yasmin Yasmin was trying to say," and Yassine was like, "Who? <laughs> Who is that?" <laughs>
2: Yeah, that happens. Sometimes you slip. that happens so often in my life. I just let it, well, I just let it,
1: you know. Well, let, oh, sorry, a little, this is off the topic, but just real quick. The first time when I saw you and Yasin Bey uh, perform, I had no idea that uh, Mos had changed his name. And I was telling my mom, I was like, yeah, I'm going to a Talib concert. I don't know who else is going to be there. I've never heard of him. And then when we got there, I was like, oh my God. <laughs>
2: <laughs> That's, a, That's
1: funny. all right so uh your given name is yasin al-salman and you called yourself narcissist as an artist before changing it to narsi clearly you're not a narcissist so where did that name come from and what led to the decision to change it
2: well you know when, when i first started i chose the name the narcissist i was 16 you know
1: mm.
2: uh, you know i i was like Riggedy-row, I thought I was the illest. Every <laughs> MC thinks they're the illest when they're really young. So it was like a, it was that, but it was also I was speaking about the ills of the world that created the situation that my community is in. So it was about the narcissistic behavior of humanity and the individualistic behavior of humanity that creates war and creates conflict and creates oppression, right? Um, so that, that was really what that name became. But then when I started walking into offices and places and people would call me the narcissist mm. it was a weird like laughable moment for people right it, they wouldn't take me serious so uh, you know I would walk into a record label meeting or or a, an acting gig and they'd be like this is the narcissist and everyone would be like <laughs> and it would immediately remove my ability to be myself right so I changed mm-hmm. it to Narsi because that's what everybody was calling me. And it, sta- it stood for neo-Arab rebel called Yassin. And around the same mm-hmm. time, Yassin had changed his name to Yassin Bey. So I remember I, right. I was like, listen, I'm Yassin You're Yassin Bey. Can I be most deaf now? I can really utilize the, <laughs> the, the bandwidth of that name. It could really help my career. But no, I think if I had a choice, I would go by my real name, Um and I think eventually it will become that as as I do more video work. But Narcy is just easier. People call me that. My my mother calls me that sometimes. It just <laughs> became it became that you know.
0: Okay, word right up. Um, you have a new book out: Text Messages, uh, or How I Found Myself Time Traveling. Um, I was honored that you asked me to give you a little a blurb or shout out for the book. Um, I want to quote the book. Uh, this is a, a great quote from the book. Young boys and girls trapped in Walmarts, our consumer interim camps, a family-friendly discounted freedom. You don't see what the internet can't, not our land or home, not your mans or homes, not your towers or domes, not your power or drones. Beautiful quote, brother. Um, How have American models of corporatism, capitalism, and consumerism failed Arab Americans, black Americans, white Americans, Christian Americans, indigenous Americans all of us.
1: Everyone but white people, yeah, pretty think- much.
0: <laughs> <laughs> but the straight straight white males. But but I mean, I would argue that it's failed them. Like I, I would argue that they, they think that it benefits them, but it's actually failed them would be the argument that I make.
2: You know, similar to what I mentioned earlier about the iPhone being so inextric- inextricably connected to oppression and many of the things that we do. Um, I think we've reached a point in capitalism and democracy where things are imploding on themselves. You know, Mm -hmm. like we've reached a level of freedom now in society where uh, identity is in question, like how you define yourself is in question. Um, You know, the, the structures that exist, the financial structures that exist that are pervasive throughout like the DSPs that we use to stream our music to the corporatization of media culture to the sneakers that we rock to the phones that we use to the food that we consume and where those are placed within society and where we all sit as communities is extremely destructive and we're trapped in it. Like there's no way out of it. We are inextricably like we, we actually promote it and help it grow. Right. And I think with this, with this whole pandemic, a lot of these questions come into play because you're at home and you don't need to spend your money like you were. Right. Yes. Uh, you don't need to navigate the earth the same way, so you start thinking like, "Fuck! I didn't need all that stuff that I that I was buying and running around doing." And you know, you start prioritizing where you're putting your money and who you're supporting because local businesses are closing, and you want to support Black and Brown communities and Black and Brown store owners. And so, to answer your question, I think it's done a great disservice to humanity the way capitalism has been structured. And who are the richest people on earth? They're either oil barons, power abusive and corrupt, money hungry leaders in other countries that are colonies or were colonies, or people like Jeff Bezos and and Mark Zuckerberg. Like these are the Mm -hmm. guys that are navigating earth at a whole other echelon. So it hasn't helped us, you know? and my book is, is is very much... I wrote most of my book, text messages, on an airplane, traveling across borders and not feeling the pressure of belonging to anywhere. All that poetry was written on my iPhone, right? So, mm. it's very much about that, about having a bird's eye view of Earth and, and knowing your part in it and you being part of the destructive system and how can I change that relationship to my art? and And... Being on Haymarket, is a very, it was a very conscious decision to be on that with that publisher because that's what they represent is like, we need to overhaul the entire system. And, and it's, hard, it's very hard to do and, and remove yourself from it, but you know what it's done to our communities. I mean, it's, it's permitted the destruction of Iraq. It's permitted the death of black boys and girls and women and men in the streets and for people to not feel anything. It's permitted all these things to exist. So if we are to change them we have to think about navigating outside of that structure and again the being here this weekend and witnessing what Chappelle is doing with with empathy and love and community is exactly where it has to start you know and it's going to yes. grow from there functioning outside of the norm of what the regular system is of of art and creativity you
0: know Yeah man um definitely shout out to haymarket books um I I carry a lot of their titles, including your book um, at uh, your book text messages at my website uh, qualityclub dot com and Kiru books mm-hmm. um you know, from Angela Davis to Boots Riley to Narcy Nars Haymarket puts out a lot of quality quality progressive books
2: um yeah, I feel I, I also feel blessed to be amongst writers and thinkers that have influenced my whole my whole way of thinking politically and socially so. Yeah, it's yeah. A, it's a, I, I feel so honored to be on Haymarket. Shout out to Anthony and the whole team out there, you know?
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, you're also a professor um, amongst all your other talents. It's like, what do you don't do? You know, you teach hip-hop uh, and hip-hop-centered education <laughs> at Concordia University in Montreal. You've mentioned this uh, on the show. You've invited many of your friends who work in hip-hop spaces or work in entertainment spaces to come to your class. Um, essentially, you've been building bridges between academia and the hip-hop culture. Um, How did you become a teacher?
2: Um, I got invited to be a guest in a class by Mark Peters, uh, who was a professor at Concordia in the Fine Arts Department, to -hmm. come just be a guest speaker in his class. And then when I did that, he then eventually asked me to co-teach the class with him. And then he eventually didn't want to teach anymore. And we had 34 students or 48 students at that point. So when he left that position, he gave it to me. And I saw the the space as such an important thing to grow within the institution. Because mm-hmm. wherever I went within Concordia, whether I went to go pick up speakers at, at the the equipment depot, so I can blast music and not blow the speakers in the room. Or uh, if I went to the department and asked them for something at the time early on, I was always the hip hop guy. And I was like, this is very limiting." People would say yo, yo, yo to me and not speak to me <laughs> like I'm a normal person, <laughs> right? I'm starting um, laughing. laugh. Uh, no, I mean, it's, it's funny because, it, and I'm like, I'm smarter than you. When they would do that to me, I'd be like, I'm smarter right. than you. I know what you're doing right now, you know? Mm -hmm. So I would navigate that shit. And I was like, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to take this class and turn it into a massive thing that's undeniable at the university. So I grew it from 48 students to 90 students to 120 students to Mm. 200 students a semester. And and it would cap every time they would drop the class. It would just fill up. So then I split it into two uh, classes. So one every semester that are different. One is called Beats, Rhymes, and Life. And one is called It's Bigger Than Hip Hop. Mm -hmm. And, and one deals with, like, the creative aspect of the game, how to become an artist, and demystifying the end product and how, it, how much work it takes to reach that point. And then the second class is more about the identity struggle in hip-hop and how it shapes. So just making them more aware of their environment and opening up their third eye, so to speak, through hip-hop, right? Um, mm-hmm. Which I used the Black Star album for one whole semester. Every class was a different song from that album. Um, mm. So, it, it again, just like everything else, it came full circle to me through the culture of hip hop to be in this institution where brown voice, there's only like two or three black professors at Concordia, right? So to be a brown voice in the university that is really not... In any establishment, I don't belong to any establishment. I I work freelance for everybody, whether it be as an individual artist or as a professor. So just to have the kids think outside of the classroom, like you don't need this education. You should get it because you have the privilege of getting this education and being in this space. So don't waste that privilege, but be aware of that privilege and be aware of that the institution is a microcosm of the problems in the world. So- if you are to undo those problems, you gotta first undo your position in the university. And that's what hip hop taught me, knowledge yourself, what determination. Right. So like that's what yes. I use my class for.
0: Right up. Mm. Beautiful.
1: Uh you recently did a collaboration with Todd Runger, which is an absolute musical genius, legend, yeah. but uh not somebody that not somebody that you we would typically think that you would do a collaboration with. Where did that come about?
2: Man, Todd hit me out the blue by email. He was like, hey, I'm Todd Rundgren. I'm looking for a Muslim rapper to be on my (laughs) album. And I was like, mother, I was like Muslim rapper. (laughs) But for some reason I responded to it. Like I got it and responded instantly. And we got on a call with each other and I talked to him and he was like, yeah, you know, do you have any music that you would share? So Sandhill had created something that I was recording that day in the studio and I sent it to him, and uh, he loved it. He played instruments on it. He sang on it. He produced it, and then it became the collaboration for his album Space Force, which the song drops tomorrow, actually, um, oh, September eighth. Wow. But after that, I delved into his work, and I was like, "Fuck!" And I remember I told Nico, I was like, "Yo, Nico, uh, I just did a collaboration with Todd Rundgren. Do you know him?" And he's like, "He's like, bro, who are you? Like, how do you end up talking to unicorns?" Mm-hmm. I was like, I don't know. This is just my life, you know? Um, right. So I sampled him. Actually, Mike Chav sent me a beat, and I recorded to it. And I was like, yo, what is the sample? I really like the song. I want to use it for my upcoming record, the Rockefeller record. And he was like, oh, this is a Todd Brundgren sample. I was like, what the? F-? So I sent it to Todd, and he sang and played on it and helped me clear the sample with Warner for nothing. And he's also featured on my record. So it just, uh mm-hmm. I've been very blessed, man, to come across people that I've collaborated with that um, have done legendary shit and it's just helped pave my way, you know?
0: Yes. Mm -hmm. Shout out to Rockefeller Records, definitely. Rockefeller Um, Records for life. um, When I was growing up in Brooklyn, I spent a lot of time with um, uh, a group called Population Click, which ended up becoming the Rose family. They were one of the first groups assigned to Ruckus. Um, The members of the group were Shabar Allah, and Allah's son, rest in peace to Allah's son. He passed away back then when we were doing those records. Um, Shabar La then became known as Daddy Rose. He became one of the most respected sort of street dudes in Brooklyn. And um, he's part of like the first generation of 5%ers in the Brownsville area of Brooklyn. They, ref- they refer referred to him as the older gods. So a, l- a lot of the 5%ers in Brooklyn learned from this dude. And back in 93, 94, when I was running around with him, when that's when the term son became a real big term in the community. And he used to be like, I don't call you son because you mine. I call you son because you shine. And I, I remember mm-hmm. that that word placement always stuck with me until I heard on the Wu-Tang album years later, Method Man say, I call my brother son because he, like he shine like one. Because he shine like one. And so Narcy comes with his son, his song The Sun, which got a placement. Um, and he says that I call my son's son Son because he sounds like one. Um, you mentioned earlier that the Wu-Tang had an influence on you as an MC. And being your friend and being an MC, I hear it. You know what I'm saying? I noticed it before you even mentioned it. Um, tell mm-hmm. me about how impactful, and again, circling back to the Black Arab connection in hip-hop, how powerful. The Wu-Tang was on you as a young rapper who's a Muslim rapper, but the Wu-Tang is coming with gangster music. They come in with hardcore music that could be considered violent or materialistic or even misogynistic, but they're also coming with Wu-Tang is for the children. They're coming with spirituality, they're coming with consciousness, and they're coming with Islam. You know what I'm saying?
2: Mm. Yeah, so I think the, the most formative thing with the Wu is that when, when I was leaving Canada to go back to Abu Dhabi. Uh, and I finished high school and we were leaving. My sister had a house party and somebody left a 36-chamber tape at the crib. And I mentioned this in the Diatribes book and that tape became the tape I listened to all the way to Abu Dhabi. Like, I burnt mm-hmm. that tape. I I broke the tape. And then I bought the CD and it became one of the first albums that I learned back to front. Um, mm-hmm. And I was deeply... I'm still deeply into comic books and it had this, like... Outerworldly comic book, AKA feel that, you know, these guys were superheroes outside of the music. So, and then Wu-Tang forever dropped and that shit just fucked my head up. I didn't understand that shit till the year 2G, you know? So, mm-hmm. um, it just became so iconic in my life. At the age of 14, I drew a big Wu-Tang symbol on my wall in Abu Dhabi and, and it was like the hangout place for me and my boys. We would hang out in my room. And, and, it's just such an iconic thing, you know? Uh, And then Ghost and Ray were so influential on my sort of, the way that I write, the free flow of some of the ways that I write, one of the styles that I write in is directly influenced by Ghost and Ray. And then, you know, one of the the things that stuck out to me the most was the Gravediggers era and then the interludes on the Wu-Tang Forever album, where they talk about the mentally dead and, Waking up from being mentally dead and finding yourself in a spiritual space, and that was Islam. Yes, you know, although it was five percenter knowledge, it was Islam, um, and it just made me delve deeper into my religion. So Wu Tang, listening to Wu Tang and a lot of hip hop records from Rakim and all these, you know, Muslim artists, pushed me further into studying the 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 practice of of the of the religion. You know, mm-hmm. um, so Wu Tang is deeply influential on in me, and I call my son "son" because I shine like one. My son's name is Shems, so yes. is what it means "son" in Arabic. His name is Shems, which, which oh, is right here. Shems, so it it it, it means "son" in in Arabic, like the sun, you know, like the celestial being. So uh, I call my son "son" because he shine like one. You know, yeah, no Wu Tang forever, bro, forever. One of my
1: favorite. One of my favorite characters from Shaws of Sunset. That's her son's name, too.
0: Mm. Yes. And um, you know, one of the first was... people
2: that my son met is the RZA. We met the RZA backstage in Montreal. I took him with me, and the RZA signed the 36-chamber vinyl to my son, to Shems, mm-hmm. um, And I, and it was an amazing moment to see them backstage. I have a photo with the two of them, you
0: know? Last time I was, uh, did a show with you was in Dubai, Beat uh, DXB uh, with the Wu-Tang. RZA was there. Um, definitely shout out to RZA. Uh Make sure people check out the RZA episode of People's Party that we also did yeah. this summer. Um, now, I want to thank you for your time, Narcy. Um, uh, you are an inspiration to me. I'm glad to know you. I do have one more question, though. Um, it's about the technique of rapping. Um, because at the end of the day it starts with the pen. It starts with the emceeing. All these wonderful things that you've been able to do starts with being an emcee. And um, Jay-Z talks about that in his book. That's my life story. So um, I want to go back to that. Um, I used to rap, and sometimes still do, very fast, with a lot of words, trying to fit all these words into bars. Me too. And so did you. Me too. And so did you. <laughs> yeah. Um, now recently, uh, you I've heard you describe your sort of slowing down as you streamlining your thoughts better. And you lean into the idea of the fact that music is based on a feeling and how, how people feel and 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 concentrating more on feeling than on thoughts. Um, how important is it for artists like us who are wordy, who are loquacious, who are thoughtful and lyrical to understand and appreciate that music is often for many people a feeling first?
2: Yeah, I think, you know, it took me a long time to reach this space where I, I have sort of a clarity in, in my writing that that is direct, you know, even if like the first thing you brought up with the, I hit a J like Solange knows, you know, I, I, the placement of my bars now uh, have become so important because I know if you grab somebody right off the top, they're going to listen to the rest of the 16, you know? So um, mm-hmm. I've just become more intentional with how I say things and when I say them and, 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 and not being, forcing every line to be a fucking incredible punchline. It has Mm. to be very... And and now my writing process, I prefer writing in the studio right before recording uh, and sometimes altering my verse while recording because, again, from the space-time process, it taught me to really be in the moment. And those are the songs that resonated the longest in history, you know, Mm. forever music, like the Bob Marley's and the people who have created music. It's like they were in... They were so in their moment. So that's really what I strive for as an artist and and uh, the pen is very important man the pen is mightier than the sword so you got to use that shit you know you got to sharpen the pen not the sword you feel me?
0: yes indeed yes indeed well this has been a great experience for me I've really enjoyed talking too, to bro. you um, Jasmine and to, uh, thank your new baby for holding us down for the whole interview um, you know yes love and light and uh, the people's party it's the Narci episode thank you Narci we love and appreciate
2: you peace squad peace jazz thank you guys man love you peace